You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 104 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me today is Daniel Aaron Dilger and Mikey Campbell, both esteemed esteemed gentlemen from the Apple Insider website. Hello Sorry. from San Francisco. Hello hey Dan. from not San Francisco. Hi, Mikey. You're in Hawaii, right? I am, Dan. Mikey? I'm, yes. I'm coming to Hawaii. I well, I better, better leave then. When are you coming? Yeah. Tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah? Cool. Yeah. I'll be here. All right. <clears throat> we should hang that out. Does, that doesn't leave a lot of time for you to get out of town, Mikey. Oh, don't worry. I can, I can get it real quick. All right. So I want to start off with one of the stories that was popular on our site this week about a former Apple engineer saying that the company's become more rigid and less competitive under Tim Cooks than it was under Steve Jobs. Oh, one of these stories? Because yeah, these, these, uh, these don't happen like every other week. Well, so what happens every other week is that someone says Apple was better under Steve Jobs, man, without a whole lot of, of reason or support for it or, you know, that basically Apple's are constantly being told to stop doing the very things that made them successful, right? They, they, they always conclude with the assertion that Apple needs to just become like every other company. What's different this time is that the person stating things worked at Apple for seven years. Yeah, I've. Well, I mean, we get we get emails like that all the time from former engineers. This this one just happened to be on social media and kind of gained traction, I think. With uh, who did he tweet it to? He tweeted it to. He was, um, he was talking to John Kirk and Horace Didu. Yeah, Horace Didu. Horace Didu. Hey. And then CNBC picked it up, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so first, let's just go through what he said, and then we'll discuss it. All right. So he said that. Apple's internal culture is vastly different today than it was five years ago. Mm, and that not despite what you said about people sending us emails like this all the time, Mike, he says that there's still a culture of secrecy and most people don't talk about it. Um, talk about what? There's a lot talk, of things that they talk don't about, talk about. Right. Talk about that the, the way that Tim Cook has changed and realigned things. And he says Tim Cook fired Scott Forstall and aligned the executive staff so as that there would be peace, which is that there is no conflict. None of those uh, things. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like a bunch of hubbub. Apple actually made that into a press release. This is all known information so far. Okay, but... And not controversial whatsoever. Right, so executives aren't competing with each other anymore, and Tim's message was, don't bring me conflict. Well, what do you mean? uh, What's his name? Um, Tony Fidel just said a couple days ago that, that there was no conflict. At all. Well, but that's under jobs that they weren't competing. They were both trying to, to work to find the best solution. Mm, it sounds like Fidel is uh, padding, his, uh, padding his nest a bit there. Well, that's uh, what I, Neil's conclusion was when we discussed it last week, was Neil said that, that Fidel was trying to make sure that he didn't appear to be in a competition and be the losing side of that competition. Because he was. Anyway, moving on. Right. So, so this fellow, Bob Burrow, the engineer, says that the result of this con- is that conflict is pushed lower in the organization and that there are a ton more middle managers. That, that under Steve, it was extremely thin, dynamic, competitive, and that, that the whole company could turn on a dime, which we all know Steve used to say. Right. So, but, I mean, at the same time, you have to remember that when Steve was around, they didn't have the behemoth that was iPhone. You need some sort of structure at the top 
when you have a product like that that accounts for so much of your revenue and such a huge portion of your success. Or in it's, general, when you're making two hundred something billion dollars in a year, you have to have a different structure. I see it kind of like if you ask, if you look at somebody developing as a person, you say, for the first you know twenty years of your life, you were sitting around in school, and now you're not in school anymore. What's wrong with you? It's like, well, you have to go to school to know what you know some basic things, and then if you're going to do something, you have to go into the real world and, and try new things and have a different structure in your life. If you're constantly in school, you may be learning things, but you're not going to progress in the same way. If you go off and start a business or you know develop in a company or something, there's a very different thing from school. So for someone to observe that Apple is different today when they're making 200-something billion dollars a year than even 10 years ago when they were making something like, what was Apple making 10 years ago? Something like 30, 30 billion, 15 billion? Yeah, it's, it it's, it's a fraction of that. A, a totally different company, a, a totally different scale of company. Yeah, right? I, I mean, I would, I would hope that they would have a different executive structure than they did years ago. You can't. I, I mean, you, you maybe so, you could find success, but it to. So, so what you're saying is that it's the classic "what got you here won't take you to the next level" kind of thing. Well, That's not I necessarily mean, true. In some cases, yeah, that 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 isn't necessarily a. Uh, just a truism, but in some cases, if you look at a rocket or something, there's one kind of rocket that gets you th- through the first part of the atmosphere, and then afterward, you have to change. You have to you have to be different because you're dealing with different circumstances. And not only is Apple much bigger, and like Mikey says, they're they're doing things on a scale that's just completely different than what they did before. If you look at what what Jobs was doing when Jobs came back to Apple in eighty what ninety six, uh, where Apple was is they were this kind of boring company that was. They didn't really have a, a structure. They had a couple of different strategies that were all competing, whether they were trying to be a mobile company with Newton or whether they were trying to just stick with the Macintosh. They were doing some really interesting stuff with multimedia, but it wasn't clear how they were going to make money from it. And they were doing a lot of their own proprietary te- technology in some areas that didn't really make sense and people weren't adopting because there wasn't a clear outlook. Is, is, you know, are, should we bank on Apple or should we go with the rest of the world that's, that's doing Windows stuff? So Apple had to dramatically change things. And one of the things Steve Jobs did was slash all this stuff and come up with a very simplified strategy and be able to turn on dime so that you could rapidly change things to say, oh, what we're doing here isn't working. Let's change it. So they came out with XServe and they did XServe for however many years. I think it was like 2002 to 2005 or something. It wasn't very terribly long, but they put a lot of effort into doing server stuff because it seemed like it made sense because they were servicing education computers. And it sort of made sense to be selling a, a server that was appropriate to those users. And then some other areas that were strategic and creative and multimedia and stuff like that. But after a short period of time, it became obvious that, first of all, the world wasn't caring about Apple servers, no matter how well they were built. And second of all, it was a, it was a thing that Apple just wasn't very good at. Because the server industry is totally different than consumer electronics. And... Third, there were other things that were much more valuable that they could be doing. So they got rid of servers entirely. And if you look back at some of these projects that were killed, the people who worked in them were really bitter about it, as you would imagine. Steve Jobs killed a bunch of stuff initially, and then as time went on, he killed things. And those people turned into just Apple haters after that. Some of them did, at least. So when you look at like how Apple was before uh, the vast scale of iOS devices totally changed the company... Or even before that, the, the period of iPad or iPods, when a lot of people were thinking, oh, Apple's now the iPod company. They don't even call themselves a computer company anymore. And why don't they just get rid of the Mac? 
there's always been a, a criticism of Apple that whether it's informed or whether it's completely ignorant is not is not necessarily true just because somebody's okay. giving it. Yeah. So I mean, when, when you consider that there's so many, I mean, Apple's also grown at the same time, right? I mean, grown well but they've been been slowly push out things like they've they've had a lot of uh bumps and starts on the road to the self-driving car they've had a lot of hiccups trying to figure out apple tv including the fourth gen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know this this new tv app thing is is sort of a stretch the gaming thing hasn't really worked out on it so far they're they're kind of casting about Mm. yeah i suppose but but that's not really uh dan go ahead man one of the interesting things that Apple does is they, they build a, a, a technology and they start building on top of it. And it's not clear, even to people like me, when, when you see a new technology that's being rolled out, what their end goal is. And sometimes it doesn't, it, it's more, it's much less obvious than it would appear to be. And I've been watching, you know, I've been sitting through WWDC sessions for many years and I've seen how they'll roll something out and They'll describe what they're doing and why they're doing it, but then later they'll come out and do something on top of that that's like, oh, that's what they were doing. And they didn't really like flesh that out that well to everybody to know what was happening, but you can see a lot of different examples of that. And I, you know, some of the things that I like to talk about is, you know, iPad or iPod games. Remember that from before the iPhone? Yeah, right. People and like, and why we are all they doing concluded this? it wasn't a big deal. Well, it was to prove that they could do an app store. Yeah, it wasn't just to prove that they could do it, it was to learn how because they hadn't done it before. And nobody else had done really the exact same thing that Apple was doing before in terms of packaging and delivering. And, you know, they really figured out how to do it. And they kind of did it in public. And nobody really paid attention. And, you know, most of the people that were observing that were saying, oh, this is dumb. Why are they doing these little games that are, Well, know, as soon as we had the iPhone, um, I, I podcasted at the time that we were going to get iPhone games out of that. We were going to get iPhone apps out of that, even though it took a year. Yeah. And in, in retrospect, some things can look really obvious. And perhaps it wasn't quite as clear as that because, you know, I, I've heard a uh, discussion re- more recently where they were talking about, you know, they were talking about whether the iPhone should have a, a real platform for native apps. And there was actually some controversy about that discussion. And it really came down to, well, sure, it's probably a good idea, but we just can't get it out as soon as we can get the iPhone out. Yeah, right. So yeah. the first thing is we get the iPhone out, then we figure out how to do that. And so there was, a, there was a number of different parts of that being put into place. But you have to learn to run before you can, you have to learn to walk before you can run, right? So there's a lot of other things that I've seen where they've taken a technology, something like uh, continuity. When they came up with continuity, it was kind of like, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. You can pick up a phone call on your Mac. You know? But you can now pick up a phone call on a watch. And you can have ear pods that you put in your ear and they're wireless. And you can adjust the volume on your watch or on your phone. Mm-hmm. Even if the watch isn't where the phone, where the audio is coming from. Well, back to the, there's a lot of things that they're incrementally rolling out that you don't see until it's actually there. Yeah. Well, back to the. Uh, I mean, circling back to the original topic, could they do these uh, kinds of, um, you know, dipping their toe in and you know, testing the waters first and you know, building on stuff like that if they had the structure that was under Steve Jobs. Could they have well, done the same thing? Th- things have, those kind of things have been uh, occurring before under Jobs and are still occurring under Cook. But one of the comments that um, Burroughs made was that what's different is that there was a lot more contention before 
And he sort of extrapolated that into sounding like it was a contention of ideas, so you have more ideas to pick from, which is a good thing. If you're trying multiple things, it can be much better than if you put all your eggs in one basket, so as to speak. However, there's a lot of examples in Apple's far back history from the early 90s when they were working on two things, there were two teams working on two things in such contention that it squandered resources and it um, prevented things from being focused upon. So, for example, right. there was right. the Mac and the wait, Apple II. Wait, and then you don't want to... And then there was another project to make portable Macs. And then there was another product to make, uh, I can't remember which it was called, Magic Cap. And Newton kind of like fought and then they spun Magic Cap off. And basically, that's how Microsoft got its ability to make tablets. But there was so many, like, almost duplicative efforts that were contending. Right. So there, there are a couple ways to go about this. One, one way is to duplicate the effort completely. And and there, do you remember there was this product at Sony that was, um, oh, and I'm blanking on the name of it now, and I even own one of these things. Uh, it was a little handheld Sony device that was Wi-Fi and didn't have a cellular service in it, but it was a slider, and you could use it with a little thumb-poured keyboard on it. Um, and they made two versions of this thing, two generations of it. Oh, the... Sony um, uh, made a lot of stuff like that. The, yeah. They're... They you know the one I'm thinking of. The computer. It had Skype. Yeah, right, right. It, it, okay. It wasn't a Vio. It was it was a little yeah. tiny handheld. Yeah. But it wasn't a phone. It was a Wi-Fi and Skype and AOL Instant Messenger device. Yeah, right. Was it their their when they were licensing Palm OS? No, it was not a Palm OS device. It was after licensed Palm OS actually. Um, and they they had eight different teams inside internally making it. Each team unaware that the other existed. Yeah. And they picked the best winner out of all of it. So it was completely duplicative effort and a complete waste of resources where the other way of doing this kind of research is where you say, I want to explore every path, every different way of doing this. We've all talked through the, all the different kinds of approaches we could take. Team one, take this approach. Team two, take that other approach. Team three, explore this third path. And it's not a complete waste of resources because you're learning something new from the different paths and being able to say, we've gone to the end of that path. We found it's a dead end. We're not going to do it. Let's put that team back on helping team two do it. Right? Yeah. And now that's the kind of thing that Apple is doing kind of consistently. We don't see that publicly. Well, so that's the question is Apple has done that historically. Is Apple still doing that? Well, one of the things that recently floated was the talk about the new MacBook Pro and that they had had two different sort of models that they were working on. And they went with the lighter, thinner version and not the heavier, thicker version. Yeah, right. And there was some, there was some, that was kind of all the contempt about the MacBook Pro is that it was who wants a light, thin notebook when you can have, you know, 32 gigabytes of RAM. But um, the problem is I've talked to a lot of people and I hear, keep hearing consistently that there's a lot of engineers, and I see it in my case as well, we have multiple computers, we have multiple notebooks, we have the powerful one that we thought we needed, and we have the light one we actually use, because it's light enough to carry around without hurting your shoulders and your neck and your back. And you can put it in your notebook, in your backpack, and take it home with you and take it anywhere with you, and it's, it's practical. And yet, if you asked us what, what we needed, we'd say, oh, really powerful stuff. The Mac Pro. But Apple, Apple has something that they, Apple has an, an infi, I, I believe Apple has an opinion informed by data that a lot of people don't have because it has the scale of building things that's so tremendous. And so it has built a number of different things and it knows what sells and what sells even better. So when, it, when they came out with the MacBook Pro for, or the uh, MacBook Air, for example, 
it was a very high-end kind of we're being fancy, but it got really popular. And as it worked down in price, it became extremely popular. And so when they came out with a new MacBook, when they basically reinvented that, made it a retina display, called it the MacBook, uh, it sold incredibly well. It was extremely popular. Now, does it work for everybody? No. And when they, when they went to the MacBook Pro, they built it on top of that. Rather than taking the MacBook Pro and, and just continuing it along the path that it was on, they went in the direction of the Air, or they went in the direction of the Retina MacBook, at least, because they, were, they knew what it sold. They knew what people were actually buying. But to somebody who's looking at that, you know, when I look at it, I would think, does it really need to be that thin? And it would appear that the answer is yes. Yeah. Does that, yeah. Does that appeal to everybody? No. Yeah. Does it make some people really mad? Yes. I, I totally the get that, their arguments. Of course, the people that are the most upset are the most vocal and the ones we tend to listen to the most, interestingly. Yeah, I mean, they have a, an important point, and they're making. There's a lot of people that are making the same point today about Mac Pros, and a lot of creative people are saying Apple really, you know, this is crazy outrageous that Apple hasn't updated this computer in like three years, and it does make a lot of sense. But the question is, I, I've also heard from a lot of people uh, saying I've been buying MacBook Pro kind of hardware or Mac Pro kind of hardware for my designers for years. And more recently, I'm finding that we can get by, and actually it's better to have to buy an iMac. Hmm. And the way that Apple designed the Mac Pro actually makes that even more attractive because it's not expandable. So you can say they should have made it more expandable, they should, they should go back to a design that has more expansion capacity and has the ability to be updated by third parties and et cetera, et cetera. But it could be that the, the massive amount of data that Apple has about what people buy in terms of computers and what people pay for is that the iMac is actually a better fit for a lot of people. Yeah. Now there's, well, there's some disadvantages that every time you buy it, you're buying a new monitor then maybe you don't want that. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously but, they're going to be sinking the money, the most money into the products that make the most revenue for them. And it seems that Mac pro is not really tipping the scales as much as even iMac. Oh yeah. It's, it's a very small niche, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it's important to have a Halo product, I suppose, and I guess that's why the Mac Pro is still kind of around. Same way that, I don't know, Acura or Honda makes NSX and Ford makes a Ford GT. You know, it's nice to have that Halo product that some people can afford and some people would actually use, but then you have the the Mustang or the uh, the Corvette or the, or the you know, the uh, the Camaro that that every man will buy and is it good enough or better than good for, I don't know, 80, 90% of the population. Or, or but it's not just, it's not just that it's a niche product. It's that what Apple is getting good at and what they're becoming really competent at is building massive, um, massive copies of the same thing. So if you can build an iPhone, for example, a new iPhone that appeals to a huge segment of the population, it's priced within, you know, it's like low enough to, where, to pe where people pay for it, but it's fancy enough to where people will pay extra for the fancier version of it. If you can build this sort of product that's uh, it, it's consistent enough, it's like a Model Ford, you know, Model T Ford, that's just, you can just create huge numbers of copies of them, and it has broad appeal, that's much more successful, as we've been witnessing for the last 10 years of iPhone, than people that are making, companies that are making a huge range of from tiny to huge and every little permutation in between 
and all these different versions of it, a lot of low-end versions, Android has been very unsuccessful in, in uh, stoking interest among all its licensees. And there's basically one company that's quite profitable, and the rest are virtually losing money. All right, so let's let's talk about Google for a moment because one of the other stories that we had this week was that Google is struggling to meet consumer demand for the Pixel. Hmm. And you know, all, all the configurations of the XL variety sold in 32 and 128 gig capacities, they're out of stock at Google's online store. Um, the 128 gig model hasn't been in stock since the end of November. They're now quoting shipping times in the second week of March for the 128 gig XL option and in store it's been completely unavailable. They should have ordered more than a thousand for the uh, first batch. It, well, is that what you think it is? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to know because I mean they're not going to break out the numbers. Yeah, the the five inch pixel, the the smaller sized one, is a little easier to find. It's it's in uh, low stock at Verizon outlets. It's it's available, but it's again, you know, they they won't ship black ones until February and white ones aren't due in late March. Yeah. Well, I think it's that, and they made a huge advertising push this time like yeah the largest for any other google hardware product probably ever in history i think so there, the google there spokesperson yeah. right the google spokesperson said that demand exceeded their expectations that means- now that's obviously what they're going to say but all we really know is that it means it's out of stock um you know there are a couple of ways this could have gone right it could have been what well, spe- speculate with me what what happened here one is they didn't forecast properly Right, not, they, not they, as you say, they uh, they ordered a thousand, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they're not a they're not a product company, so they don't have. But they the, want to be one. They, they want to be one so badly. Okay, I mean, so, it's fine. They can do that, but mi- mistakes will be made along the way, and I reckon that this might have been a mistake because they've had Google phones before. I mean, contrary to what they claim is their They've first. had Nexus phones before. Yeah, you know, well, it's... They've been working on Android phones since the G1, and the reason yeah. it was called G1 is because it was Google, and that was HTC, I believe, helped them build yes, that. Yes, that was HTC at the beginning. Then they worked with Motorola, and then every year it seemed like they were working with a different company. They were well, Samsung for Samsung, Galaxy, Nexus, LG phones, and now they're back with was the fourth generation Nexus, and Huawei was the, uh, the Nexus 6P. And in between there, they also bought a significant company for 12-something billion dollars, Motorola, yep. and tried to make it work. And, and they got into the, the supply chain and they got into the, they, they threw away the whole pipeline of products that Motorola had and were developing a lot of stuff from scratch. So Google has many times had, and when I say Google, Google is a huge company and these are obviously different teams, but the people that are running Google have been witnessing all this stuff happen. They know a lot of inside track and what's what's going on in these different companies that were, but they all failed as they were doing these kind of things, and none of these Nexus products sold in significant quantities, and they generated a lot of positive press and everybody's real excited about them and there's a lot of people that bought Nexus phones that liked them, but that didn't result in commercial success, and that kind of comes back to what we were saying about Apple. What Apple has been good at for the last forty years has been mass producing technology. And they've changed what they've been building from Macs to notebooks to now making phones and iPads. And what they're good at, or what they're continually getting better at, is making smaller, thinner, more integrated stuff. And uh, they're building a lot of things that they didn't build before, like silicon, custom silicon, on a scale that they haven't built before. 
And so all through that, they're learning a lot of things. And they've made some mistakes along the way. There was that year where they didn't get the Mac, the iMac out in time, and it like totally trashed their whole record for continually expanding the Mac. Was oh, that yeah. quarter that they bombed? They, they've the had iPhone. a couple of those, right? If you go back to the Power yeah. Mac G3, where Motorola screwed them over, this happens from time to time. Yeah. yeah, so they're they're getting really good at a specific thing. And so when people say, "Hey, why isn't Apple making a small batch of of high end Macs?" It's because that's not really what they're good at anymore. And uh, you can say that, and you can also say um, their opportunity cost of doing some like little project like that is so different than if they can sell 10 times as many new iMacs or, or 10 times as many new um, iPads that appeal to a broader population because they're even lighter and thinner and less expensive to build, and yet they deliver sort of a similar experience than um, building a, a, a similar type of right, right. Macintosh. So- so what's what's going on with Google in terms of their mistake here was that that they either didn't allocate enough parts to be able to build supply, or they order they forecasted too low, or I think um, I mean personally I think they probably they're not a high priority at their manufacturers. No, which, no, I don't think that's okay. So it's, it's not they're a high priority at their manufacturers. I mean, it, it is Google after all. They're, they're, okay, it's HTC potential. would rather sell you an HTC phone than a Google phone, I believe. Yeah, but HTC has been having a lot of trouble with yeah. doing that in the past. They they're at this point I mean, probably happy to take the business from Google. Yeah, they. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'd be happy if Google gave them business. But if Google is giving them sort of inconsistent business, that I think they just projected too low. I think they think thought it would. It yeah, I mean, I think that I think that perhaps they thought it would be a bigger hit than the old Nexus phones, and that's why they took out so much advertising and all that stuff. They they were they were hopeful, but I think that uh, demand just it, it was more than what they bargained for. And now the that they're thing. behind the eight ball in uh, in production, it's going to be hard to catch up. I haven't seen a tremendous amount of statistical detail of what Nexus is selling in other markets, but I saw this report in India that we wrote up a month or so ago, and it was talking about, uh, it was kind of picked up by somebody and run as a, oh my gosh, they have this huge segment of, you know, like a significant chunk of the Indian market. And the reality was that to enter the Indian market, which Google um, now has a CEO, that they build a lot of their software in India. Um, they have been talking about India as being an important market for some time, and they've been totally kicked out of China. So India is kind of like the only, the best new thing that they could jump on. And they tried to get the Google One thing going off there and didn't was not adopted by their partners. They didn't really want to do that. And so they put a, I think they put a big push into India and they did a lot of um, expensive promotion there in terms of advertising and also in terms of, I don't know if it was an upgrade or a, a, a trade-in or, or what types of things that they were doing, but there was very expensive marketing that drilled down their profitability even if they were selling phones. But even with all of that, they got this kind of scrap of the market. And they're fighting against cheaper, much cheaper Android phones and local domestic suppliers. So yeah. it's a tough road to hoe. And, and what they're, you know, they, they spent a lot of money to get into this market and they only got a little bit of it. Yeah. If you well, compare that to Indian. Apple and China, yeah. that's very different. Of okay. course, yeah. Well, so, so talking about things that Apple has a smaller slice of right now, I want to move to Apple TV, right? There's, there's uh, Roku's that are out there. There's Chromecast. There's Amazon Fire TV. And Apple TV, well, it's, it's certainly been out there for many years and many iterations, 10 years 
exactly. Um, it's it's not clear to me that Apple TV fourth generation is winning the market. You and, mean it's not winning the market by volume? Yeah, that's well. What I, mean. I mean, most of the volume that's competing against. I mean, Roku is kind of a a, a similar competitor in some ways, but most of the market, if you, in terms of volume, are the little USB sticks, which right. are popular because they're cheap. They're also slow. They're not a, a fun product to use. Uh, they're actually not that bad. I picked up a Roku streaming yeah, stick. And it was it was pretty slick. It was it was just as responsive as my Apple TV. I just I don't know. I don't think the market's primed for it yet. There's there has to be what once somebody breaks through the over the top with a you know with a decent solution that will actually gain traction with the public and people who actually watch live TV. Then I think we'll see the segment mature. But beyond, I mean, right now it's just like kind of a, it's kind of a curiosity, right? I mean, who, okay, maybe you guys know a lot of people that have streaming sticks and, you know, box, uh, streaming set top boxes and stuff, but a lot of people that I know don't. And they either, you know, they're just straight uh, Netflix users or, you know, they, they don't even use the built in apps that come on their their HGTV. It's it's just that the software is not there yet for them, for the, the common everyday consumer. I and think it's, it's really new, yes. Yeah. And, so, and also the conventional PC market and the conventional TV market are very similar and that I think they've kind of peaked and that young people are not sitting in front of a television and then going to sit in front of a PC. What about 5K, man? Just They're constantly having a phone in front of them and that's... So you, so you see the people that are winning yeah. are... are Companies like uh, you know HBO Go and uh, Netflix and companies like that that are producing content that people want to subscribe to, yeah. and so what Apple is doing is sort of making a, a market for that. Yeah, right. So it was Apple a is very wise decision, content, of course, right? Mm. right? But I think it was more important for them to release that TV app that was uh, for iOS and tvOS. So let's talk about the TV app. There's there's an update to it where. You know, they so far for me using it, it's been showing me Hulu suggestions and things that I've watched on Hulu and letting me launch Hulu directly from the TV app. And it, the the news is that Apple is rolling out the ability to stream a movie from Netflix directly through the TV app on iPad, iPhone, and Apple TV. Um, the Siri, you know, previously would bring up a Netflix movie when you search for content by voice, but it would open the Netflix app to do it and and require the users to select the title. Now, when you, you do a search like that, the movie streams automatically from Netflix, the same as it does from things like HBO Go and, and Hulu. Uh, Netflix movies will not start appearing in the recommended titles for users in the TV app, and it also won't allow queuing of Netflix-exclusive programming. Yeah. Um, the, the title art in the up-next queue is kind of sporadic with no apparent pattern to what will load or what will not. That's that's probably something that's going to be fixed. But um, yeah, Hopefully. But, I mean, they have to bring all that stuff into the hub. Because right now it's not there, uh, and for people who are like new to that, uh, for, to new to streaming, it's mm-hmm. going to be kind of a shock to come over and um, just s- start creating a history, right? Because I mean, if you've been watching live TV, live like a uh, premium cable TV or something like you've been watching um, Hunting Hitler on uh, now, now, you know, <laughs> what? That's a great show. I love that show. It's a good Go show. On. But okay, so if you've been watching that on you know regular premium uh, cable for the past two years, and then you come over to 
um, TV on TVOS or, or, or iOS, you're going to have this backlog of, of recommendations that you've already seen on live TV. It's not going to have this, this history for you. So you're going to have to teach it or you're going to have to learn it, which, which well, I think takes a long time. Imagine that's typical. I mean, yeah, but it's going to be, it's going to be go another platform. It might be jarring. It is a, it is a jarring like experience. A, it's a sticky kind of thing that if you invest in one platform and try to go to another, that's kind of difficult to do. But I think the main thing that what Apple is doing with TV, the TV app, is a rethinking of the general interface because mm-hmm. the Apple TV interface was a grid of icons, just like the iPad and the iOS and everything, that didn't necessarily work. It sort of works for video games because you're like, oh, I want to play this game. But if you're watching streaming content or watching episodic television or something like that or sports in particular you don't necessarily know what which little box to go to yeah so if you have an interface that's all about what you're doing mm. instead of what box you're going to launch it's in some ways similar to the whole um, rethinking of apps and documents instead of yeah. creating an app yeah. or instead of opening an app and then learning how to do something with it which is a very computer way of working with things um Sometimes it makes sense to just have a document and be able to start doing things with it. And yeah, I mean, did, when they when they announced TV, did you kind of be like, "Oh yeah, this is what they were going for when they first launched TVOS," right? Well, I don't know. Is, this is TV the app the answer to the question that Walter Isaacson left in the Steve Jobs book? I don't think you so. Know, he he said in the book something to the effect of, "Of Steve said we finally figured out TV," and then mm, yeah, I don't know what that actually that meant. That could yeah. even just have been apps in general, you know, realizing that the way to, to develop television is as a, as a series of native apps and also streaming apps, which you can do on Apple TV. Yeah. And TV is the TV. The app is the place to go for all of it. You don't have to, you know, navigate to different places in your on your home screen. It's just all in one place and collected a repository of content. And for Apple to be a provider of multiple different sources of stuff, if you're, for example, um, Amazon, you can sell an Amazon box that is linked into Amazon content. Or if you're Netflix, you could license Netflix to work on different things. But Apple's business model is being a platform for third-party developers. And so to make that work, you know, the first idea is, okay, here's, here you can make apps for this platform. And now it's um, the TV app is sort of a rethinking, like I said, how do you get the content out of it without having an app grid as your interface where you just go to it and you're like, oh yeah, here's a bunch of stuff. Here's a bunch of content that that's what I want to watch or that's what I want to watch. And then it takes you to the app in the background. That's a, a really smart rethinking of things. And I think that's an evolution. I don't think that was like that was what they were intending to do from the beginning. I think that was kind of something that evolved. And if you look at a lot of other things that Apple's doing, it's kind of in a similar, um, in a similar pattern. Like it especially reminds me of Apple News. Instead of being you know, a whole bunch of different news apps, you go to Apple News and all the things you subscribe to are there, and it doesn't really matter where they're from. Yeah. You're clicking on it, and it takes you to whatever site published it. And then you go back, and you're in the news interface. You're not just sitting there on one publisher's app. Are that's we kind seeing of smart rethinking of how to do it? Are we yeah. seeing the end of standalone apps? The beginning of it? It's no, I think it's just an alternative browser. I think it's an alternative to the, um, you know, the Finder mentality. Instead of double clicking on an app, you're going to something where here's all the content that you're 
perusing. I think it works best for content apps. Yeah. Whether whether you're doing news articles or whether you're doing um, entertainment, episodic television, whatever movies, things like that, they kind of fit into that. And Apple Music was very similar. Mm. Instead of you know, if you think you wouldn't you wouldn't go to like every publisher app to listen to music, it would be like uh, who's you aren't going to Warner Brothers for one set yeah. of music and yeah, Sony. Who signed Rihanna? I don't know. I want to go to a music app and say. I want to listen to this person's music or I want to listen to music like her or something like that and take me to whoever's label sells this stuff and I'll buy it. But for content, it makes more sense to show people the content that they want rather than saying, Hey, here's an app, go look for it within this app, which also has some similarity to uh, the, the search services, the intelligent search where it's like deep app within app searching, where instead of looking just for the app, you're now looking for, Hey, there's a recipe and oh, here's the app that has that recipe in it. It's like deep content searching. So yeah. deep. Deeply. Right. Very, it's, it's very cool. Cause you know, instead of it's, it's the, you know, TV app when it has Netflix and Hulu and HBO go and sling and all these other ones, then you, you search for the show and it takes you through the service to get to them or it plays the service directly with the service running in the background. That's, that's what's the, the big change, right? That's where all the, these other interfaces drop away and you, you end up with a situation that feels more like Apple Music. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's, let's move on to some hardware rumors really quickly. Um, so last time Neil and I were talking about a rumor that said that we were going to get three new iPads in 2017. And this week, the rumor is that, uh, you know, well, a lot of people were thinking that that event was going to happen in March, that, it seems like it might not happen until the latter half of the year. Mm. So this is a Digitimes rumor, right? Supply chain stuff, which we know to be a little bit, uh, we, we should be wary and skeptical of this, right? Yeah. Well, we should be wary of Digitimes. Some of their, well, the best stuff that they predict is stuff that's in the pipeline. Right. So the rumor suggests that um, a 10 and a half inch iPad and a 12.9 inch iPad Pro will have a beefed up A10X processor. Um, not clear at all. The rumor is on on what will power the 9.7 inch iPad. Um, they're thinking the 9.7 inch iPad is said to focus on the education sector a lot in the, the way that the eMac originally did and the MacBook Air kind of does now. Um, yeah. The notion is that the display for the 9.7 inch iPad will ship to shift to Korea-based Seoul Semiconductor, uh, shifting away from Nietzsche, uh, and other components for the entry-level device will be sourced from secondary suppliers. Yeah. So basically, it's the 12-inch iMac Pro Mini. <laughs> yes. Yes, and, I think that's exactly what the 10.5-inch iPad is the, the one for normals, apparently, or one for typical people. And the 9.7-inch 9, becomes the education one. Well, it's the thing about when they, when they came with the Mini, they took the regular iPad, and it was the same resolution on the Mini, right? Right. right. Which is scaled down. And then when they came out with the uh, Retina I, iMac, or the iPad, I mean, um, they similarly scaled it so it was... It was or, or what I'm I'm thinking is the 12 inch one is scaled up in a similar way where you the width of the screen is now the height. Yeah, right. So the well the 10.5 inch one is if, if you took two iPad Minis and held them side by side, you arrive at a 10.5 inch screen basically. Yeah. So well, if they right, do up, the up or down, up or down, you guys, do you, do you think we're going to get a 10.5 inch iPad? 
Yes or no? Rumors. Well, that's what the rumors yeah. are saying. Play, extent, place yeah. your bets. Yeah. I say yeah. I say yeah. Dan? Um, well, I mean, that's what people are saying. I mean, that's the, the rumor. Um, what I'm curious about is what's going to sell iPads. And okay, go perhaps on. education. So, so if Apple can make something that's cheap enough for education, because they are facing pretty strident competition from Google, just kind of dumping netbooks on their market. Chromebooks, to be exact. Yeah. And um, it's not Google itself, but Google's partners that are making these devices that work, that browse the web, you know, they're, they and have keyboards. That is the most important thing. Okay. So they, they browse the web, they have keyboards and they also have Google docs accounts for education. So you get docs, sheets and presentations. So you've, you've knocked out the whole office suite that the teachers expect them to have. You've knocked out internet access and the beauty of it is for IT, where if, if one of these machines dies, it doesn't matter. You simply get another one and sign into it. Yeah, so that's classic kind of dis- case of disruption. Is coming in with something that's like pretty much as good, but it's much cheaper. So how does Apple handle that? They either come out with something that's so much better that they say, hey, this is worth it to pay more, or they come down in price and deliver yeah. something for cheaper that they can keep selling while Google goes out of business selling. I don't, think the, I don't think the premium model works for the U.S. education market. Yeah, that's a tough sell. But, I mean, they were selling notebooks to those to some of that, too. Yeah. I mean, my school had, I think we use, um, I think my, my old school uses iPads exclusively now. We use Macs before. But uh, I think a majority of schools don't put a premium on premium hardware. Well, it depends. When, when I was teaching, we had a, uh, a hybrid setup where we had... Uh, a lab with a Power Mac G4 server and iBook G3s for the whole lab. And then we had a Linux terminal server serving X Windows to other laptops and Dell machines that were acting as dumb terminals scattered around the building. And then we also had access from um, teachers' Windows laptops signing into the Mac server. Wow. So it Sounds was pretty. Like a mess. Well, it was a hybrid kind of thing, but each, each machine served a different purpose. So if Apple can create a machine that scales more purposes, that would be one thing that they could do that would be competitive. Another thing Apple's doing, I, I think, it, like you're saying, it, there's it's a tough road to hoe for education, especially in the U.S. Um, Apple well, has been putting is, a lot of effort into I mean, enterprise. The, the, the thing that matters here is curriculum, right? It's, it's not, can we bring technology into the classroom? It's what are you going to do with the technology once you have it? And how yeah. does this support purpose and goals in education what what are the things we're trying to accomplish by bringing technology in here and how is it going to help further our academic goals and if it's just teaching office apps the same way that we've done forever and ever and ever to the point where there was a statewide um, competency test in you know database manipulation and in spreadsheet manipulation and word word processing manipulation um, great except we haven't really gotten anywhere for the past 16 years, right? Not, not a whole lot's been gained other than, yes, students who know how to be competent at doing those tasks. Yeah, um, and the enterprise is not focusing on how to use Excel and Word to develop documents thank for an office. Um, in, in the new future, I think what we're, what we're going to do, and a lot of what Apple's doing is partnering, like what I said, with enterprise and ma- massive uh, consultant companies like IBM and Deloitte. They're building custom stuff that automates industries that were not ever part of an office before. 
And some of the examples that we wrote about were managing aircraft maintenance and managing flight stuff for airlines. And flight airbags was one of the first things for, for iPad. And suddenly you have all this information that can be on a device instead of a bunch of paper stuff. Carrying around a briefcase full of maps. So if you have more and more stuff where you have custom apps, you have a need to uh, do specialized workflow on, that, that's on an iPad and with iOS, then you have educators that need to teach development for iOS and they need to teach how to use these apps and how to, how to build stuff like this and how to, how to go into a workforce and know how to work in an environment like that as opposed to the 1990s you know, productivity apps. Yeah. yeah, but as we've seen, it's hard to fight politics, especially for Apple and going up against uh, Google's huge. There, huge there again, it, it's about curriculum and curriculum support. And if Apple provides curriculum support, then that makes a difference. It makes a difference, but the final the buck stops here, man. Is whoever's well, in budget. charge? Of, yeah, yeah, for sure. So. It's it's tough stuff though. Yeah. One of the interesting things Apple showed off at WDC last year <clears throat> was the beginnings of you know people keep talking about why can't I in my home log into an iPad just like I can log into my Mac with my own account and it shows me all my stuff. Mm-hmm. Multi kind of like a single user device that anybody who unlocks it now has kind of full control over the content on it. Right. And what Apple's doing in education and they're not doing it anywhere else yet. But what Apple's doing in education is making it so that you can have one set of iPads that a class comes into, the kid logs into it with their account, and it gives them their user. Right. Yes. And then when they log out, it saves all that stuff to the network, and somebody else can log in. Well, that's actually, they can actually start working while it's logging in and sending stuff around. Right. Well, that's kind of much fewer resources on an iPad than than a Mac. Right. Well, that's uh, kind so of that's like the challenge they fix for education, right? and that is kind of a key. Like, yeah, why did they do that for education? It's because mm-hmm. they can't sell every kid an iPad, but they can sell a classroom of iPads that, isn't that what all the kids can use. Isn't that like the the appeal of Chromebook was? When it, yes, it's education. one of the appeals of Chromebook. Yeah. But there again, it's it's the question is what's the curriculum? And there is, you know, I I don't know of a good curriculum developed around the Chromebook. I do know of a good curriculum developed around iPad. Unfortunately, it's not widespread. Are you talking about the uh, Houghton Mifflin or whatever that is? Uh, uh, I was actually talking about the uh, the Cedars School that um, I'm blanking on the name of the young man, uh, the the fellow who runs that. But there's a Cedar School, and I think it's based in Scotland, and they have a very strong iPad program. I think Apple. It would be strategic for Apple to also develop more stuff. Like one of the other things for for um, the enterprise market is that Apple is having companies that know how to do stuff and know how to work with clients and figure out what they need and build workflows for them. Apple is saying, "Here's how to build our apps. Here's a language called Swift. You know that that makes apps easier to build, mm-hmm. and here's." Is particularly how to build Apple-looking apps that are nice, because these kind of people build apps that look terrible. If you go to you know pretty much any industry, if you look over the counter and look at their terminal, it looks like crap, but it works really well. So Apple is working to make stuff look nice so that it's more usable and can be used by a greater number of people with less training. And 
if they can do that for um, enterprise clients, they should be doing that kind of stuff for school. And one of the things that Apple's done itself that's really cool is the new Swift Playground. Mm. It's really cool at teaching kids how to learn how to program. Yeah. And if they develop a lot of stuff like that also or, or work with other companies to develop stuff that, that works and looks like an iPad app and that teaches kids important ideas, that's going to be really critical in getting into education. Yeah. Saying we're the platform for the best way to teach most effectively. Yeah. I would like to see them do that a little bit faster, harder, <laughs> deeper than they are doing right now. But better than a has to be better than a learnings code with Minecraft. Just tough. Yes. Tough. Tough sell. Yeah. Well, Cano is doing that on Raspberry Pi. If if you uh, use Cano, which is a, a open source Linux based thing that you load on SD card and drop into a Raspberry Pi, it has a number of lessons to teach you through uh, Python, uh, basic uh, MIT Scratch kind of block building for programming, and also Minecraft. They guide you through that. But it's um, it's a little clunky. You, you have to be motivated to get into it, where Swift Playgrounds is a little easier to get into. Yeah. The other thing I think Apple should do is do something along the lines of Raspberry Pi, where you have a little box that has components in it that's essentially like an Apple Watch, you know, like Apple Watch cast-offs or something. Well, where they, you could, have use, they could use 12-inch MacBook because it's the same exact size motherboard. No, I mean a, a very small, very cheap device yeah. that you could use to build robots or you could use to build... Uh, sensors of various different kinds. You could plug it into HomeKit, make it make it all just work. Yeah. And so, it's education is here's a way to teach kids how to build things, to unlock creative thinking, to rapidly prototype ideas. You know, basically the the super Legos of the future. Right. Did you Did you see the? Uh, uh, There's other companies doing that, but Apple well, Windows Windows has Windows 10 for IoT for Raspberry Pi. Mm. But they don't have the hardware, right? Well, they're just, they're, they're the only thing you hear, go get your Raspberry Pi, use Windows with it I think, for developing IoT I think, stuff. Right. But Dan, and why I think Apple would be good at that is because they are good at making things in huge quantities. So if they were making a low-end thing that wasn't, wasn't a competitor to an iOS device, it was a peripheral kind of device that you're building things with and then, you know, programming it with your iPhone, you could sell them by the millions. And Apple yeah, if has you could the make a HomeKit device and program it with chips. with iOS with Swift, Extremely that would be huge. Yeah, and have, you know, put intelligent sensors of all kinds on it, so you could do all kinds of cool stuff with it. They could sell tons of them, and you know, even if they were not making tons of money, at least they could sell it. Say they're selling, they call it like a iPad Nano or something, and mm. say they're selling a bunch of iPads again, <laughs> but. But it would also right, be a reason why people would buy iOS devices as well and Macs. For sure. All right. So the next rumor, this is a simple one, but will be appreciated by all, I'm sure. Uh, citing a source on Weibo, uh, there's a report that an Apple Pencil 2 will arrive this spring, featuring a new magnetic system that will allow it to temporarily attach to an iPad. So you can just clip it on magnetically, just like your smart cover can. And... Uh, you know, there, there are third parties, sleeves, that have been doing that for the first Apple Pencil, but this one is going to have it all built in, they say. And So uh, basically an Apple Pencil with a magnet in it? Something like that. Apple Pencil Pineapple? I, Apple Pencil oh, 2. Don't you start that, Dan. Don't you start that. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know. You're right, Dan. 
seems uh seems like the apple pencil could last at least two generations without i mean two uh, years without going through a generational change you think okay i mean i don't know i mean there are other things they could do with it you know maybe yeah i mean there's a whole bunch of patents there's a whole bunch of patents out there that have all kinds of crazy stuff for them you know like attaching crazy nibs that look like paintbrushes or you do some uh, cool continuity stuff to where you touch something on the side of it and configure it with the touch bar on a new macbook pro yeah right you're picking rapidly being able to pick uh i don't know why i said a macbook pro because that would you would you know use a (laughs) apple pencil with that but until until they release the macbook pro with all glass keyboard yeah. With with the trackpad second the size of the keyboard, yes. I'm still waiting for the uh, yeah. I'm still waiting for the second the secondary display MacBook Pro that has a uh, second display as well, the now, touchpad. At, at CES when I was there, Razer was showing a three display prototype laptop that got stolen, and somebody stole them. Yeah, uh, yes, that got <laughs> somebody stolen. stole like two of them. There there were several things that got stolen from the show. There were, there were the two prototypes of the, the Razer 3 display laptops that were stolen. There were other things that, that got stolen as well. And I, you know, they, people were using the, uh, the CES press mailing list to send out these things, announcing that their products were stolen at the show. And the tr- I don't remember that happening in years past. Now, not to say that things weren't stolen in years past, but I, I don't remember being these, these wide announcements like that. It's kind of free publicity, right? Well, a little bit, but also it's, it's really stupid to, to steal something from CES because the product isn't even finished yet. And so you know that, that you've, you've stolen something that you can't sell because it's unique in the world, and it'll never have any support either because it's the one-off. I don't, I don't think people steal it. To, they just steal it because it's a cool thing to have. I would, I would like to have a – I mean, I'm not saying that I stole it. Victor. Mikey, where, where were you between I was January 3rd and January 9th? Where were you? But I was definitely not at CS. Yeah. <laughs> as far away as possible. Right. So this this is one we've talked about in the past, but this is a new new take on it. So in, in the past, we were talking about a class a lawsuit. Where, where someone had been in an accident and one of the people who caused the accident was text messaging on their iPhone and, uh, and, and killed a person. And one person was suing Apple because Apple has a patent on locking out text messaging while in motion. Oh, I wonder how they uh, caught wind of that patent. And um, you might have written about that. Is that what you're suggesting? I did. Yeah. Uh, well, but I mean, yeah. It's so now like, there's a class action lawsuit. Before it was a single uh, person, not a class. Now it's a class action lawsuit filed in uh, Los Angeles County Superior Court it's claiming that Apple had the technology to perfect texting and driving since 2008 and that they've done nothing with it. Okay. Well, is it Apple's job to be big brother? It's kind of weird. It's like people don't want tech companies to be big brother. And then when it benefits them, especially financially, they definitely do want them to be a big brother. Imagine if Apple came out with a technology that denied you the use of of a smartphone when you sit in the driver's seat of your car. How many complaints would that get? Do you think people well, would buy the phone? Look, if, if you try and use Waze while driving, Waze is the navigation app also owned by Google. It says, are you a passenger? Yeah, it, it says you're in motion. It looks like you can't do it. And, and it says... 
totally. you know, say, okay, I'm a passenger, and then you can use it again. But it's kind of pointless because if you are driving and you want to continue to use it, you just put, yeah, whatever. This uh, this patent is stop people from doing it's, this. Uh, it's, 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 most, it's, it's illegal in most places to. Right. Yeah, it's illegal. Yeah. Uh, right, but legislation has not whatever. proved a solution to this because people are still being dumb. So well, sometimes you don't have a solution to ideas. I mean, sometimes people. Well, you know, Apple does have a solution. It's called Apple CarPlay. It just doesn't happen to be in every car yet. Yeah, like I mean, as I said, um, I talked. You could to, have a CarPlay enabled car and still just be texting on your phone. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to connect. It. Well, if you do connect, it. you could, but you could also equally well just do voice texting as I did this morning. Yeah, yeah I mean, this girl probably could have been doing that too. I mean, I said a girl. I don't know who it was. It was I the think girl that, it's earlier. weird. It's weird. Oh, the girl that got killed by a guy that was texting in the earlier. That was the other case. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird because um, I remember when the uh, who was it? Was it NTSC? Whoever NTSB? Whoever did the uh, the latest um, traffic? So there's statistics. I think this one cited an AT and T report, but I mean that's who cares about that? There was a there's a national. Um, so the U.S. Department of government Transportation government. claims a 1.5 million people are texting and driving on public roads at any given moment. It's weird and because the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration yeah. says that texting and driving is six times more dangerous than driving while intoxicated. I also I think that there was a report that said um, there's also a report. Yeah. I mean, comparing those two statistics are very it's kind of apples to oranges. But anyway, it's uh, I'm just laying it out there. They, it also found that um, you don't even have to look at your phone to be distracted, right? It's just the fact of thinking about texting or you know thinking about anything except for driving. Yeah, you could be worried about yeah. your. It's it leaves iron on at home and then run somebody over because you're daydreaming. You know. So I don't I don't know if it's Apple's responsibility to put this into their products to have. If you're if their consumer base wants to use their products in a reckless manner, then it's up to them. Um, I think it's just a bridge too far to ask a consumer electronics company to account for the safety of its buyers. I also think it's a bit of overreach in the kind of American uh, sense of whenever anything happens, you find liability elsewhere. Mm. And it, it's not really that like that anywhere else. And that's why we have the society where you have to have warning labels and everything. And, you know, some of that is, sure, let's put a warning label on if it stops somebody from hurting themselves, but it's a reflection of kind of an American culture of anything that happens is not your fault, even if you did it. And we now have, we have leaders that just stand up and they say something and, and you say, wait, you just said that. And they're like, no, I didn't. And like we have yeah, on that, video and they're like, no, I didn't. You, you misunderstood me. That you're, and you're being unfair. You're that, that and the people can profit greatly from such things. We've created a, uh, Go to court seeking money, basically. Yeah. Particularly the attorneys. So that's that's what's driving it. Is it you know if you can say, hey, I'll get you a hundred thousand dollars and I'll keep a third of it or more, right. maybe you're making a lot of money for just assigning blame to somebody else and convincing a gullible jury that, hey, this person had no capability for anything that they did. It was this company that owned a product that they used. You know? Right. But it should be. I mean, there is something to be said for the foresight Apple had. I mean, they filed for this patent in 2008, so uh, they've been thinking about it since the iPhone came out, basically, that this could be a definite problem for consumers. They just haven't chosen to enable the, uh, the so-called well, lockout feature. Their strategy of using a, car, using a phone in the car was hands, hands-free, 
and yeah. then it was eyes free yeah. and then carplay it's like making it so that you don't there. have to be distracted or that you're not as distracted yeah. it's getting there i don't think a lockout is the answer all right so let's let's go ahead and wrap this show up yeah dan parting thoughts for our good listeners out there um i wrote a couple articles um I have another one coming out about last weekend. I went to the 25th anniversary of, of the deploying of QuickTime and kind of what that means. And, and it was a big thing for Apple for a very long time. And it has, it kind of helped save the company in a, in a measure. It was one of the things that Steve Jobs said that Apple had kind of neglected and he put ahead, he put kind of on a higher priority and it's made a big change in how everything works in the world. So I'm going to be writing about that. But um, it was a really cool event to see these people, like a lot of luminaries that were part of the production of that um, 25 years ago, starting. And um, Steve Wozniak was there. I talked his leg off. <laughs> He's always <laughs> or did to talk you talk your leg off? I would let him tack my leg off. I'm sure but, he would sit there. Uh, enough with the legs, guys. That's kind of yeah. scary. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can move. We've all yeah. talked our legs off. Michael. Parting thought for our listeners. Um, I don't know. Have a, have a great week. It's Very been good. A long, it's been a long one this, this week. Yes. All right. I'm Victor Marks, your host, and uh, you can find all of us on appleinsider.com. Daniel is uh, at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N, on Twitter. Mikey Campbell is at MikeyCampbell81 on Twitter, and I'm at VMarks. We will be back next week with more Apple Insider Podcasts. Please feel free to leave positive reviews on iTunes or emails and tell us what we can do better. Thank you so much. <laughs>